Our next speaker, Sir Andrew Motion, was Poet Laureate from 1999 to 2009. He's Professor of Creative Writing at Royal Holloway College in uh, the University of London. <clears throat> He's written acclaimed and awarded works of poetry, fiction, and biography. And in 2009, he was knighted for his services to poetry. Um, a very warm welcome to Sir Andrew Motion. <clears throat> It's a very cool leather jacket. Yeah, well, every time I see a doctor, I feel I have to take my clothes off. <laughs> <laughs> you you're, see. Not, you're not the first person that said that to me. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, moving right along. Reading your memoir, In the, in the Blood, the thing that struck me um, was your description <clears throat> of finding poetry or poetry finding you, um, and I don't know, I guess you were 15 or 16? 16, 16, yeah. 16. And, and your description of it, um, well, it, was, it was a violent, almost vis visceral description yes. of it being a weapon. It, yes. Yes, I mean, it, because you've nicely read the, those pages, I'm going to tell you something in a sense you already know, but for those of you who, who don't know this, um, what happened was that my, I mean, the, the sort of slightly deeper background is that my parents were absolutely not bookish people. My, my mum, who died young, maybe a bit more about her in a moment, um, read a bit. In fact, I think that she probably read a book every 18 months or so. I have some early memories of her sitting up in bed, pulling out of a jiffy bag the new... It always seemed to be the new novel by R.S. Murdoch. And I now, of course, know that R.S. Murdoch wrote a novel every 18 months, so that was probably my <laughs> mum's reading speed. And she liked R.S. Murdoch, so she just waited for the new one to come along. My father, towards the end of his much longer life, looked at me with a funny expression on his face one day and said that he reckoned that he'd read half a book in his life. Um, and I know what that book was. It was called The Lonely Skier. And it was by, what a title, it was by Hammond Innes. Somebody must have told him it was a thriller. Not for him. <laughs> I have lots of, my, my brother and I <laughs> have lots of memories of him bringing it on summer holidays and while the rain was falling outside. <laughs> <laughs> impatiently turning the pages over, and then when the sun came out, gratefully throwing it away, and he never got to the end of it, it not in my sight, anyway. So there was no expectation that I would grow up leading the life that I have led, and with the passions and interests and other such things that I have. Um, and I guess that it probably wouldn't have happened at all were it not for actually three things, probably. I had a, um, a very good friend at my secondary school, whose family came from a professional background that was absolutely not my parents' background. I mean, they were country people and did country things. I grew up in East Anglia. Um, and then this thing happened to my mum, again, perhaps of which a bit more anon. Um, but crucially, I had a completely brilliant English teacher who just walked into my head the, the very first day that he taught me, actually. Um, do you mind me writing no, on a little bit great. about, about yeah. this? Um, coming into the room, he'd been in the army during the war, like most of the people who taught me and people of my generation. So actually he marched into the room, swinging his arm in a rather sort of unpoetic way. Um, and he told us to open the school anthology, which this was the first of my then two uninterrupted by AS levels. 
A-level years. Um, and he told us to open it at page whatever it was. I can remember everything else, but not the page number of this anthology, which was called Other Unsexily Theme and Variations. Um, and there was a poem by Thomas Hardy, of which the title is half the first line, actually the first line. I look into my glass, and he means um, looking glass, mirror, not drinking glass. And the poem goes like this. I look into my glass and view my wasting skin and think, would God it came to pass, my heart had shrunk as thin. For then I, undistressed by hearts grown cold to me, could lonely wait my endless rest with equanimity. But time, to make me grieve, part steals, lets part abide, and shakes this fragile frame at eve with throbbings of noontide. So it's a very beautiful poem, and it did, I mean, as you've reminded me, I mean, it, it, it did sort of, well, I, what I said, I think, when I was writing about it the, those few years ago is that I think I was remembering a thing that Keats had said to Charles Brown at Fanny, about Fanny Braun's letters that he received in, on his way to Italy, actually. I felt it go into me like a spear. That's what Keats says. It's still Brown. doing that to you. It's yeah. Still, it's still got well, that effect. Doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, doesn't it? It is a really piercingly beautiful poem. Um, I have to say, I think the other reason I remember it is that I was sitting next to a boy called Nixon. I wonder what became of him. His father was in the Navy, um, who put his hand up as soon as this was over and said, Sir, so um, what kind of throbbing are we talking about here? <laughs> Which at the time seemed a sort of so embarrassing. <laughs> but of course now seems exactly the right question. And I suppose, I mean, I was just a little animal. I'd barely read poems before. Um, but I was incredibly deeply imprinted by that poem as little animals are imprinted by their early experience. Um, but I dare say it was pushed in a bit further by Nixon's question, I must say. Well, what kind, of, what kind of throbbing are we talking about? <laughs> I think we're talking about, well, I mean, essentially what it is, is Hardy wrote, as we all know, almost all his poems is quite an old man, by which, of course, I mean starting at about my age, <laughs> soberingly. Um, so in, in his old man's body, he's both ruing and feeling relieved, I think, about having a younger man's feeling there um, by hearts grown, I mean, so he's undistressed by hearts grown cold to me. He's, in other words, part of him is feeling this isn't going to happen again because I'm not sort of young to do anything about it, um, and that's a great pity. And the other part of him is feeling um, few, at least I'm not going to have that to deal with. <laughs> Uh, anymore. So it's very interestingly balanced, actually. Mm. I mean, however we understand the poem, I think I mean, there are various other things immediately to say about it. One is that it's a very odd poem to give to a room full of testosterone-fueled mm. schoolboys. But it certainly did it for me. Mm. Um, and I can remember going up to Peter Way, his name was and is. I mean, he's become a very dear friend. He's an old man now, 90-something. Mm. Um, and saying, did Hardy write any more poems, sir? And instead of sort of knocking me aside, he said, or even saying stupid boy, he just said, you know, yes, about 3,000. <laughs> um, and then he lent me a selected poems of Hardy. And when I'd read that and had loved it, he lent me some Larkin poems and some Wordsworth poems and some Tennyson poems and some Hopkins poems. And almost all these people have remained my favorite poets, actually. So I really was imprinted very deeply. I mean, there are other people that I've learned to love, come to love since then, but 
those people did go in very deep. But, so it went to, so you're there, you hear this, it leaves you with a spear in your chest. You go on and write extraordinary poetry, become poet laureate, and here we are. Others in the room <clears throat> may or may not have heard it, mm. and at least one of them um, turned it into a good opportunity for a joke. What, what, what is, because many, a, a big, poetry comes up every year at Medicine Unboxed. Sure. And particularly this year, as the, you know, it's as the fabric of voice or its intimacy with voice. And it's adjacent to the music, I was thinking, actually, music, yeah. earlier in the after afternoon. But me very often, even so after this event, regularly people say, that's a really interesting bit on poetry. But, you know, I just don't, I, I just don't get poetry or I can't read poetry. It doesn't do anything for me. It leaves me cold. I prefer, mm. you know, in a way that people don't say, actually, no, often right. about novels. Um, no. They might like a particular book or a writer. But s and certainly not painting or, or indeed yes. music, since we would... I just don't get paintings. Yeah, no. exactly. So what is happening there for it to have that completely visceral effect on you and not others, and whatever its wider implications for what poetry means to the world? Yeah, well, that's a very complicated question, and I'm not sure that I have... I think I probably have any bits of whatever the answer We've might be. We've got hours. Be. We don't have yeah. to close. We just okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, part of it's acquired, learnt behaviour, isn't it? There is a sort of thing buzzing around in far too many schools, which has got something to do with, not to do with teachers themselves invariably, I think, but to do with the way in which children are encouraged to think about poems in schools um, that make it seem... Actually, I spend a lot of time... I mean, I go to a school a week, at least a school a week, to talk to kids about poems. And the word that I keep hearing from the sort of refuseniks that you describe um, is it's irrelevant, which is a very odd word for me to have to sort of process about thinking about this, because as far as I'm concerned, poetry is like breathing. And breathing is famously not irrelevant. I mean, we, you know, we need to go on doing it. And so what is, how has that come about? Well, it is, as I say, partly, I think, to do with the way in which poems are presented to them. I think it's also got something to do with particularly if you measure the difference between the way people react to poems when they're very little mm. and the way that they do in after puberty, it's got something to do with them, whether they like it or not, realising, by which I mean that they don't like to realise it, um, has something to do with the fact that it is both recognised to be socially, broadly socially, and in an individual's experience, something which is a hotline to strong feeling and therefore might be rather an embarrassing mm. thing to think about. Right. Mm. And even though they're sort of you know, very keen to manifest their individualities and their strong feelings about this and that. Nevertheless, something which is very in their face, as yes. poetry often is, invariably, as I would say, perhaps is a bit of a difficult thing to, for them to deal with, and so on and so on. So it's a, it's a complex set of reasons. And so I almost, there, sorry to interrupt, but almost a denial of it. So, I mean, tomorrow morning we'll be talking to Stephen Gross about the subconscious and yeah. what it is that makes us say certain things when we're actually feeling others that we're not aware of. So yeah. almost a complex, I don't get poetry, as in I can't, I, yes. I don't want to go to no, this. No, I don't want to put myself in that vulnerable position. And I think yeah. poetry does require us to make ourselves vulnerable, actually. I mean, I think there's something else which is slightly more difficult to talk about. But I was, it was brought into my mind very much listening to that, I thought, completely thrilling panel conversation about music mm -hmm. earlier, um, which is to do with how unverbal poems mm. are. Robert Frost famously, at least in my head famously, and very brilliantly, says about 
the origin of poems, that, that they begin with a lump in the throat, a lovesickness, a homesickness. And I, this, I hold this remark very dear, partly because it catches something unpleasant, difficult about the business of writing, lovesickness and homesickness being absolutely horrible things, really horrible things. But also a very cherishable remark because it suggests that poems really begin with a kind of ache or, well, for me, I have to say a musical ache, a kind of noise right at the back of my mind. And the business of writing is to do with, for me, and I, I'm sure for many others as well, trying to drag that thing towards the better lit front of your mind. And in the process, certain words, certain memories, certain ideas, dare I say, stick to it. And it begins to become a poem. And then your conscious brain, not exclusively, but importantly, gets to work on it. So possibly one of the things that people find difficult about poems um, is to do with that, that it asks them to go very far back in their heads. And allied to that, of course, the fact that almost all the things that we're invited to read in life, newspapers, a lot of the books that we read, um, in a brilliant remark of Heaney's, actually about Dylan Thomas. Um, he says, Dylan Thomas's poems do not propose to spell an exact proposition. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that poetry itself aspires to sp spell an exact proposition. I think it aspires to spell multiple propositions. And I think that the better the, the poem, the, the more chances there are that it will, that our experience of reading it will be that it's kicking up its heels and vanishing over the horizon. And we're sort of panting along behind it, not able to catch it. Um, and that's unnerving for a lot of people. Yes. So we just have to kind of it them a bit and get them used to it. And because we want neatness, we want a nice story. Yeah, Not, even if it's quite. an unpleasant story, we want it wrapped yeah. up. We want, well, as we, I think we've said, you and I have said in various other contexts, you, a lot of people, most of the time, and I, for perfectly understandable and sympathetic reasons, want a kind of and then, and then, and then the end. But actually, poetry doesn't really offer that. It offers a version of it to do with glances and glimpses and so on in narrative terms. But its end, as I say, is much more multiple than singular. And as I also say, that can be very unnerving. Could we have a, could we have a poem? Yeah, yes, <laughs> of course. Um, which I hope will now kick up its heels and vanish away from you. Um, <coughs> just while I'm looking for it, perhaps I can say something else about this, which just doesn't quite bear on the question you were raising, which is to do with when I was thinking about what I might be listening to today and what I might be talking about to do with the notion of voice, I was thinking that, I mean, part of the thing to do with voice is to do with authenticity, um, what sort of, how you find your voice, which then allows us, might allow us to say interesting things about context, which perhaps we can do in a second. Mm. But the other thing, of course, is to do with acoustic. Um, this same wonderful English teacher, I can remember asking us to read on the page a bit of The Wasteland, Eliot's mm. famous poem, famously difficult, still, poem, The Wasteland, and looking at it, um, this is very early in my experience of reading poems and thinking, what, what? And feeling, you know, truly baffled by it. And then him having the good idea of putting on a record of Eliot, reading it. There's, there are actually more than one recording of Eliot reading The Wasteland, but anyway, listening to, to this, and feeling the hairs on the back of my neck stand up and beginning to think how interesting it is that 
I was being moved enough by, these, by the sound of this poem to be emotionally involved in it in a way that I was finding difficult to do still on the page. I mean, that, that did happen, but a bit later. Um, in other words, wherever we reckon the meaning of a poem to reside, we must say, we must say, it has as much to do with the noise it makes as it does to do with whatever the words do mean when we see them written down. And a lot of my life in the sort of practicalities of, around the practicalities of poetry have been to do with trying to establish some sort of acoustic mm. um, world <clears throat> for it, especially the poetry archive. So the way poems sound do matter to me, so I'm, this is a very long way of saying I'm very pleased to read you a poem. <laughs> I'll read you a, since we were talking about early things, I'll read you a poem about um, the first home that I can remember, which was actually not in the bit of Essex that I remember best, where my parents moved to later, but down in Hertfordshire, in a village called Hatfield Heath, where they lived when I was sort of from two to 11, which then was quite a small village, now is a rather busier place. And over the lane from the house that we lived in was a mill, a proper old-fashioned clabbered mill, which my mum rather discouraged me and my brother from going anywhere near, partly because I think she thought we were going to get squashed on the road, um, sensibly enough, no doubt, but partly because I think she had an idea of the miller as this kind of fee-fi-fo-fum <laughs> grinding person who was going to turn us into wholemeal bread, you know, and she'd never see us again. <laughs> and like all forbidden things, the mill immediately became very appealing. <clears throat> so here's my poem about the mill. These are... I mean, this is a poem I wrote recently. Over the road, and twice the size of the house we lived in, five stories at least, white clabbered, wide as a barn. The cat reconnoitred. I followed the cat, clambering this side or that of the mounting block steps, then ducking the sack that drooped like a sleepy eye, almost to block the door but not, and in, Darkness, light, shadows that jigged with brand dust and wheat dust and softened the pulleys, the beams, the ladder fading away to discover this attic or that, where the miller must be, ignoring me on my porridgey floor. And hushed, but roaring in fact, the dry continual biblical thunder of mill wheels grinding together. Surely the heaviest weight in the world Furious, too, with the fury of infinite patience. Where was I now? I'd forgotten. No, no, I remembered, looking for something I was, like the cat looking, here between rows and rows of comfortable sacks like soldiers asleep. Looking for this, perhaps, this handful of grain in a gush, overflowing my hands at a rickety funnel, like money, but free and perfectly useless, but precious, Priceless, if only I caught it. Maybe not this. Maybe just wanting the doorway again, resisting the weight at my back, breathing and grinding the weight and the dark, and staring not inside but out the way I came in. Was that really my home there, over the road? That acacia tree by the gate with its scribble of yellow, those snapdragons snapping, my mother afloat in a window pane, like a bubble frozen in water? Surely again, but surely, surely not mine. Besides, 
I had turned into dust. White hands, white clothes, white hair. And next thing would drift away through white air. You mentioned uh, Seamus Heaney, and as did uh, Sean Elian earlier, earlier on, a yeah. uh, towering yes, figure. I um, thought that was a very good quote, of course. I mean, he distinguished between, on the one hand, the craft of poetry, the rhythm, the metre, the words, and the technique of it, which he, yes. he suggested was something to do with an individual's stance towards life. Um, yeah. I, I, to me, that always had a really strong parallel with, with medicine and knowing you know, uh, the data, the temperature, on the one hand, and then what a health professional, an allied health professional, a nurse or doctor, then their behaviour. You know, T.S. Eliot says this, isn't it? The two, um, two oh, questions. Yes. Um, what we do about something and how we behave towards it. Is this, when you're talking about authenticity, are, are there parallels there? And this came up yesterday in the student. Right, I'm, I'm sorry I wasn't here. But, uh, Struggling with this notion of what it meant to be an authentic, uh, what it meant to have integrity as a health professional and our technique over and above our motor skills and our cognitive sure. knowledge. Well, possibly there are very close and interesting parallels to draw there. I mean, I simply don't know enough about what it's like being a doctor to, to, to answer that authentically, I don't think. But one thing that might be different and actually probably rather important that immediately occurs to me as you say that is that all the time when you're writing poems, even lyric poems like I try to write, which appear to come directly out of personal experience, you're kind of rearranging the furniture all the time. I mean, there was a mill over the road. There was. And I did go there a few times. But actually, most of what I put in that poem is completely made up. Um, I was thinking the other day about a beautiful poem by Philip Larkin called Faith Healing which some of you will know, it's about faith healing. Um, it has one of his most beautiful lines in it. Um, in each of us there lives a sense of a life lived according to love. Fantastic line. Um, anyway, it turns out that in the late 1950s he did indeed go to see a film um, in which a faith healer appeared. And as a result of seeing that film, I can't remember the name of it now, he wrote this poem. But the film is set in America. The faith healer is a woman, I think. In other words, almost everything is different at the level of narrative. Um, and then you get this poem in which it's set in England, the faith healer is a man, and there's a lot of other stuff in the poem as well, including all this sort of great Larkinish, beautiful lift-off that you get around the idea of what love can, can do in a life. Um, I mean, perhaps that is what you do with your patients. Perhaps you sort of seize what you think is the kind of nub of things and then do your magic or your practical magic around it. I slightly think that's probably not quite what you do, actually, but that is rather what poets do. I mean, in a sense, I hope you don't do that. Yes. <laughs> As a potentially ill person, I rather hope you don't do that. But, but it is, of course, absolutely what poets do. So you end up with a, a very crucial separation between the poem and the poet. I mean, all those fancy ideas that were sort of floating around when I was growing up to do with the death of the author, they do mean something, actually. And what they mean to me mainly is um, the, they certainly might, in some important respects, arise out of personal 
experience. But if the poem's any good, of course, and I'm, I'm sure I'm saying something blindingly obvious here, the poem moves away and becomes its own self-sufficient universe. Mm. So the, the author is parked in the process or sidelined or just pushed into the background or transcended. I mean, so you, I mean, it may be right. It may be that the, 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 the parallel doesn't stretch enough, yet people do talk about trusting mm. the writer. They, I, I trust this poet's work. And, well, they're trusting uh, the poem, aren't they, not the writer, perhaps? But, but the, so that what is the fabric of that trust? Because if there, is an, if there is a contention at the moment in the health service, is that ebb of trust. Now, I, I may well turn up in being complete command of the facts, mm. uh, whatever they may be. Um, not whatever the facts may be, but no, whatever sure. a fact actually is. Um, sure. What is it that engenders trust? I mean, this idea of... Um, Something actually in the con in the sound, the fabric of the sound of the speaker, or indeed the health professional. And I accept him completely that me, you know, me delivering chemotherapy mm. is, yeah, is, is oceans apart from you, you know a, yeah. writing a poem. Something about the approach that I am bringing to the individual or to the poet, um, I think, at least has the wisp of a parallel. Yes, it is a very complicated area of this, as, as we've already agreed, and there are these important differences between it, and I'm having some difficulty in sort of being persuaded that I can bring them together, but perhaps one thing I can say about this, or actually maybe a couple of things. One is to do, again, actually with the matter of sound. Oh. Um, when we trust a poem, I mean, actually I rather don't trust poets, I, and I'm not very interested in poets in a sense, <laughs> it's poems I like. Um, if you know what I mean. I mean, yeah. some of my best friends, etc. but <laughs> nevertheless... <laughs> Poems, is, poems are really what we're here to sort of think about in this respect, I, mm. I think. I mean, the question of how one produces the other is endlessly interesting, mm. but, but let's just think about poems themselves as potentially more reliable <laughs> things than poets are. Um, how poems generate the sense of their reliability is partly to do with the, as it were, wisdom of what they have to say. In each of us there lives a sense of life according to love, which we think, indeed, that is true. Mm. So that would be a sort of, as it were, a reliable thing. But I think there's something else that goes on as well, which is, for, for me, and I, whether we know it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, I think is probably a general experience too, which is to do with the very weird effect that the acoustic of a poem can mm. have on us. Mm. It can persuade us to trust it. Mm. Let's just think about, um, for instance, the fact that probably, you'll think I'm making a joke, and in a way I am when I say this, but it occurs to me that the first sound that everybody in the West hears and other parts of the world have their equivalent to this is actually a poem. It's a two-word poem it's, and it has a perfect rhyme. It is a perfect rhyme and it goes goo-goo. If we think about that seriously, I mean, what, when a mother or a father or whatever says that to their newly born child, what they're saying is, I love you, trust me, are you thirsty? Here's some milk. Be happy. Um, live forever. I love you again, etc., etc., etc. And that's all kind of wrapped up in, in a noise. Mm. So if you just hold that thought in your head, I mean, the implications of that thought in your head for a second, and then think about how interesting it is that the word nonsense in ordinary conversation... I mean, if you said something to me and I said that was nonsense, you would um, know that I was meaning that it was rubbish. I mean, it just sort of was nonsense. <laughs> But if you put the word nonsense next to the word poetry, as in nonsense poetry, immediately and clearly it doesn't mean that. It means it's the kind of poem which 
aspires to tell its truth by a particular and rather peculiar route, mm. often indeed by using language which in some sense does not exist in ordinary mm. conversation, Jabberwocky, for instance. Now, if we just think about what Jab how Jabberwocky works, what it does is to create a set of noises, which in most cases, not all of them, because some of them are, as it were, words in our ordinary discourse, but in most cases, words which are, um, are not in the dictionary, but which when we hear are equivalent to some emotional state. And we very quickly process them as we're listening to Jabberwocky, and we think, oh yes, that's kind of what it means. We don't expect everybody else to feel exactly the same thing. Well, if you put that next to the goo-goo point, what you realize immediately is that when you're listening to a poem, when you've just, and whether you knew it or not, when you were listening to the, my poem about the mill then, you were thinking, there's the mill, there's little Andrew, there's the lane, there's, you know, there are the sacks, there's the grain, there's all this. But a bit, another bit of your mind was thinking, actually it wasn't thinking at all, it was just receiving sound and thinking, well, again, I've used the wrong word, a feeling something, which put it in the poem. And if you like the poem, then that might perhaps be equivalent to a sort of trusting of the poem. Mm. It made you feel whatever it made you feel, happy or sad or both those things together. So the, tr the trust almost resides on a, or potentially resides on a level that is beneath the cognitive radar. Yes, and I think that happens when people come into your yeah. consulting room, actually. Yeah. I think they sit down opposite you and they think, I like Sam before you've even opened your mouth. You'd be mouth. surprised at how many people don't. Well, <laughs> but that, that is the price that we pay. That is the price we pay, and we can't expect everybody to no. tune into us. No. Um, I mean, I rather think that, I more and more think, actually, since I'm, my wife and I are rather obsessed by our cat, um, I think of myself increasingly, actually, like a cat going through the world, and if my whiskers just sort of brush up against things in a way that upsets me, then I don't like it. And similarly, we must expect people to whiskers to brush up against us and they're not like us, and that's just how it is. The, the poetry came to you at a time of, um, <clears throat> of quite significant loss. Mm. Um, you're, Slow you're loss. Slow loss. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of people find poetry at particular times of extremes in their lives. They do, yeah. Um, Shall I just react yeah. to that a bit? Yes, do. No, thank you. <laughs> um, I mean, for people who don't know about what ha happened and why on earth should you, my mother had a very serious riding accident um, and hit herself on the head and was unconscious for three years. It's a long time to be unconscious. Mm. Um, and then sort of lifted back in... I mean, this happened when I was... I just started writing poems, indeed. So I was 17. Just, I just turned 17 when it happened. Um... And then at the end of this three years, she lifted back into a rather difficult to describe place that was between being awake and not, really. She was sort of lucid some of the time, and eventually she kept getting pneumonia, as people, as you know, people in that sort of situation do. And eventually um, she got it again in it, and she died of it. That's what it says on her death certificate. Actually, yeah, she died of a broken heart, if you ask me. I mean, it was a classic case of watching somebody struggling and struggling to get herself back to life and... Her, I mean, her heart just broke in the process of making the effort. You could see it, you know. It was awful to see, I have to say. Um, but what it did for me was, for good and for ill, was to establish a, I mean, for good and for ill for me as a writer, no doubt, as well as for a human being, um, is to establish a very, very close connection in my mind between writing poems and elegy. I've met plenty of people who think that writing poems is... is a way of 
showing the world you love it and that all poems are really love poems. And I can see why they say that, but they're not really for me, or at least their love poem-ness is subordinate to their elegiac-ness. Um, I think all the poems I've ever wanted to write are ways of saying, stop time, stop. Um, sometimes, I mean, so they're mainly sad poems. And all the poets I like best are sad poets. Hugo Williams says this brilliant idea and amusing thing to say about a sad subject of poets being really sort of fully paid up members of the Sadness Club. <laughs> and I have to say, I am really a fully paid up member of the Sadness Club. So it's Hardy and Larkin and Christina Rossetti and you know, people like that for me. Um, but then what does the poem do there then? Is it, you know, it may sound like a trite question, but is there therapeutic value in the writing of it or the reading of it? Or are we being too uh, instrumental about it? Well, we must not be too instrumental about it because otherwise, as somebody was saying in an earlier context, we end up using it as a means to sort of ease some anxiety or, or other. And of course, it can do that. But, um, but to do that is, a, a, again, equivalent or similar to what happens to school kids, which is sort of where we mm. came in, which is that the, the study of poetry is very often, and I think rather catastrophically, made um, a sort of adjunct of getting them to think more interestingly about whatever they're meant to be thinking about in their history lessons. The point about poetry is poetry. In fact, in my list of things of what makes a poem important, the idea of subject, for me, comes very low down. Mm. I mean, there has to be a subject there, but actually it's about poetry. It's about to do with a mixture of all the things that we've been talking about, including vitally noise, which emotional noise, which you're pushed to define. And and there, if we, I mean, it's almost inescapable the figure of John Keats. Yeah. And I'm amazed we haven't <laughs> mentioned him yet. We but must quite. mention him. Um, and his, as I understand it, but I'd be very grateful for your thoughts on this. His impulse to um, heal was wide and encompassed poetry and medicine. Mm. They weren't separate in No, endeavors. very much not as I feel it, right, again, rightly or, or wrongly. I mean, I, there are sort of flip ways of saying it, and the flip way, which I know I've said in your hearing before, but the flip way of saying it really is that Apollo is his god, and Apollo is the god of poetry and the god of medicine. Yeah. And it, it's not a question of just hopping over from learning how to be a doctor and healing the body um, and sort of saying, right, I'm, you know, this is too much like hard work or not the kind of hard work I want to do, so I'm going to go and be a poet instead. It really is a way of trying to find, and the poems do this in a very interestingly linked set of ways, of trying to find a way of being, as it were, therapeutic, of being healing um, in poetry, sometimes quite calculatingly, because when you can be bothered to look for it, there are quite a lot of, as it were, open windows in the poems. I mean, just sort of clues about leading a healthy life. But more interestingly, um, and much more suggestively, I think, a way of saying all the time, um, employ your senses, think with your senses, don't only think with your intellect. And I've been so struck going today, almost everybody has been hovering around this, actually, I think, of talking about ways of interpreting medicine to their patients and to themselves, which that Keatsian model speaks to very, very directly. I mean, of course, you have to find thought, thoughtful equivalents for these feelings. But if, you don't, if it doesn't arise from those feelings, then you're st st stuck, I would think. And I must say, very struck, too, at the same time, by how 
thinking about how much of what Keats says about the writing of poetry in the letters, which I think mean, I almost want to say more than the poems to me. I mean, I couldn't really make that separation, but his letters are incredibly important to me and always have been. How much of what he says about the writing of poems in the letters uses figures of speech, images even, um, which are to do with doctoring. Um, so you have um, that business about um, feeling things on our pulses. Mm. I mean, that is, if you ever heard such a thing, that is a kind of medical figure of speech. But the notion of negative capability, which I thought was hovering almost sort of visibly in the air above the um, music conversation, and indeed the, the last conversation that was just on this stage as well, the willingness to, um, to put yourself in a different, in a, in a situation other than your own, without irritable reaching after fact and reason, to sympathize, which is his description of it, so that the, the sympathy, the empathy, I think one of the students at St. George's was, was raising this question very interestingly. Um, I mean, that is so, it seems so modern, um, as I understand um, a sort of cutting edge version of medical thinking to, to be. Yes. Wonderful, actually. And then the notion that you, you know, axioms aren't axioms until they're proven on the pulses. Mm. And people often talk about things not feeling right, yeah. you know, the physicality of it. Yeah. It's, not, it's, not, it, it's a bodily feeling. Yeah. In, in your, <clears throat> your, your, what you were saying earlier about the sound of the poem, yeah. these things link up. They very they? much do in, in my mind, I have to say. And, that, and it reminds me to say something else at that point too, I think, which is that I can remember when I was sitting in the classroom as a child, I mean, after this sort of moment of revelation, thinking, God, if only John Keats could come into the room now and I would say, Actually, John, if you've got a minute, could you just say what this means? Because I'm having difficulty with this verse. And that he would say, sure, and he'd kind of tell me. Um, but of course, we now know <laughs> that it's not like that, because mm. the good things that get written, I, I almost want to say the better they are, um, the more delicate the balance is between a side of the mind, the creating mind that does know what it's doing, and the side of the mind which, frankly, hasn't got a clue what's going on. And, and must not know what's going on, because otherwise you'll just produce something which is over-deliberated and too calculating. Even very intellectual poets, John Donne comes to mind as a, a genius example of that. I mean, I, I can't sort of validate this, but my sense is that, as a reader, is that there's all kinds of, of course there is, stuff coming up from primeval swamp into those poems, as well as cool and clever calculation. There has to be. There has to be. So if that's true, if that's the model, left hand, right brain, yin and yang, knives and forks, however we want to put it to ourselves, if, if the reliable, again, model of creation is to do with knowing and not knowing, being cunningly entwined, then it follows, doesn't it, that the writer, him or herself, does not, of course, know everything about the thing they've made. Mm. They must not, indeed. And indeed, we will be talking a lot about the primeval swamp in the morning. Before we get on to some questions, have we time for another poem, either yours or Keats? I haven't got any Keats with me. Can I read one of mine? Yes. <laughs> I, should be able to I should be able to recite. No, that's not yeah, what I meant. <laughs> I should be able to read one. Perhaps you have got one. I know, I haven't got one. Um, actually, funny enough, I'm in the middle of learning the... Um, the to a Nightingale, but it is, I forget it. I would get stuck. Um, so I won't risk it. Years ago when I was in Australia, um, the reason I'm going to read this is that it is, it's like in light disguise, a poem about writing. Um, I was staying with somebody who knew that I was very keen on fishing. 
And because I was about to go driving off somewhere, they very nicely put in the boot of the car a fishing rod with a line in a spinner and said, you know, just if you see any bit of water, I mean, perhaps you're not very likely to see any in the Australian outback, but if you do see any water, um, have a go at it with the, uh, there is a fishing rod. And I did see a bit of water and I, this is what happened. So it's called The Fish in Australia. Where the mountains crumbled and yellow desert began, where the sun began to smolder in a vault of indigo, I left the metalled road and found a perfect circle of still and silent water, 50 yards by 50, with hard treeless banks, unmarked by any prints. Call it a pool of tears, wept by dogs and kangaroos, or dead transported men. I considered it a dew pond, but no dew anywhere ever fell that swarthy color or seemed so like the lid of a tunnel piercing through the planet's fiery heart to the other side and England. <clears throat> Providence, anyhow, had made me think ahead. And without a moment's pause, I was parked up on the bank, had my rod and spinner ready, and was flicking out a cast to find what rose to me. Nothing rose, of course. A kookaburra guffawed a mile off in the bush and a million years ago. A snack of tiny flies sizzled round my lips. And as the dying sun sank deeper in its vault, a gang of eucalypts in tattered party dresses seemed to shuffle closer and show their interest in hearing how my line whispered on the water, now uniformly solid, ancient beaten bronze, how the reel's neat click made the spinner plonk down, how the ratchet whirred as I reeled in slow enough to conjure up the monster that surely slept below. As I reeled in slow enough, then suddenly too slow, and the whirling hooks caught hold of something obstinate. Not flesh or fish mouth, though, too much dead weight for that. A Stone Age log, perhaps. A mass, at any rate, that would not change its mind and snap the flimsy line which blew back in my face as light as human hair. If not myself, at least the pond lay peaceful then. The sun now turned to dust and a moon ghost in its place as much like company as anything complete. Why not, I thought, why not, despite the loss to me, continue standing here and still cast out my line, my frail and useless lash, with no better reason now than watch the thing lie down, then lift and lie again, until such time arrives as the dark that swallowed up, the sky has swallowed me. May we have the house lights up, please. Uh, gentleman in the blue shirt in that row, thank you.
voice, poetry, <clears throat> and music. It's a simple question. I Setting poetry to music, does that help people get access to the poetry, or does it freeze it in a bubble? Well, it's a very, that's a very interesting thing to think about, isn't it? I mean, what it does for me, perhaps even a bit of both, actually, um, but mainly what it does for me, hearing other people's poems set to music, if they're set well, which is inevitably not always the case, but if we think about Benjamin Britten for a moment, since it's, we're sort of celebrating his birthday, yesterday, I think, wasn't it? Um, and he's a brilliant setter of words. What his settings do for me is magically slow down language, even more than poems slow down language, and let us think about what's going on here, um, which seems to me always a good thing. I mean, up to a point, of course, but I mean, generally and sensibly speaking, a good thing. Um, does it then mean that the poem is sort of, I mean, do I now hear, Oh, Rose, Thou Art Sick, in Britain's setting of it in the serenade? I rather do, actually. But I, I also luckily think that that hasn't depleted my experience of Blake's poem. Um, so yes, there is an element of fixity there, but also there can be a tremendous deepening and releasing of it, I think. And I love it when people set my things to music. I've always had very happy experiences with that, and I would love all my poems to be set to music and sung by girl guides up and down the country. <laughs> If we can charge people's hands with microphones, that'd be great. Not perhaps at that melody, though. <laughs> Go. Right. Thank you. I'm somebody who spends a lot of time with both poetry as an English teacher and with uh, people who tell stories about their health. Yes. And I wanted just to disturb this idea that poets are something other than us, uh, a separate category, because it strikes me that when human beings are at their most poetic, if, if we take that to mean when they are most communicative with the minim, minimal amount of language, yeah. is when they approach the end of their life mm. and they only at moments of crisis, anyway. describe that. Yes. yes. And that, that absolute condensation, condensing of meaning into the fewest possible words and the maximum use of metaphor and metonymic effect. Hmm. And that's, yes. I think, when we discover our own poetic instinct. That's perhaps. a very nice thing to say, I think. Um, I mean, I, such moments of, constant, of distillation of the self, if you like, which we try and match in the way of distilling language, so that we, which is certainly one of the ways in which we want to characterize a, a poem. Absolutely, I agree with you about that. I mean, there are a million ways to characterize whatever poetry is, but concentration of language would, for me, as evidently for you, have something very important and central to, to say in there, or to be in, in there. But of course, such moments don't only occur towards the end of our lives. They, I mean, they occur, as you heard me muttering, for me anyway, at moments of crisis in our lives. And I think it's very interesting to think about that for a second. So you go to a wedding, you hear a poem read. You go to a funeral, certainly, you hear a poem read. I remember when Princess Diana was killed, um, just out of curiosity, I went up to Kensington Palace to look at the flowers that people had laid out. Do you remember seeing, perhaps some of you went or sent them or saw the photographs? Literally thousands of bunches of flowers were laid on the grass outside Kensington Palace, sort of entirely in rows, stinking to high heaven by the time I got there, which was about a week later. Almost all of them had a little card. 
and almost all those little cards had a poem on them. The poems were terrible, absolutely terrible, but that is not the point. The point is that they were poems, that at this, I mean, and who knows in this, how authentic their the feelings of the people were actually, but nevertheless, at that moment of crisis, they had, they had um, said to themselves, or they'd remembered as a species, if you like, that poetry is the form to, to, to turn to at, at that kind of moment, not, not the only one, but that is able to do things for us at those moments of crisis that are important to its nature and, and ours, which is again my take this back to what I was trying to say earlier about it, about it being like breathing. The idea, I mean, or rather to put it in your terms, the idea that poets are other than us seems to me completely absurd. Um, what I mean, what good poets are trying to do is to speak on behalf of people, but not in a way which separates them from the rest of the human race. On the contrary, on the contrary. We have time for two more points, unfortunately. So we've got Tom. Um, there's been a lot of talk today about the difference between poetry and medicine, and therefore how one can aid the other. But something you said about wanting to stop time made me think about the similarities between mm -hmm. them. And it triggered slightly in my head thoughts of a few poets who have medical backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So there's the, um, the American Palestinian poet Fady Joda, who works right. as a doctor and, and is a, a fantastic poet. Yeah. And his poems are kind of full of stillness and stopping of time. Oh. And then the, exa the example you gave of Keats, who obviously his, his spring odes are speak of slow time and they're incredibly they about how the arts can do yeah. that. And right. there's, there's the Keats um, sense of, he says in his last letter about he always had taken an awkward bow. Yes, and obviously I that always take an awkward bow. It's yeah. so moving that, isn't it? So moving, and obviously that was in relation to illness and to dying. Yes. And it suddenly struck me that is that not what, you know, medicine at its center is trying to slow down the ravages of time as is poetry and that we should be looking for the similarities rather than that the That seems completely right to me. I mean, I, I have to say that Yes, I, mean, I want to say something rather sentimental, I dare say, which is that um, I find it very hard to... You'll be thrilled to hear me say this. I find it very hard to think of a, a group of people, if that's quite the way to describe it, for whom I feel more admiration than doctors. It seems to me that you're doing the most important thing that human beings can do to try and save lives. But I do think a lot of the things that you're trying to and make people well, but I think a lot of the stuff that you're doing is very closely adjacent to what poets are trying to do as well, and Keats is the person who summarises that for us and um, as we were saying it completely misreads the case to think of him as bailing out of one thing and joining another they're absolutely contiguous I'm going to close it there I'm afraid I'm sorry um, please join me in a big round of applause for some <laughs>